Hello, everybody. We are live. Uh, it's nice to meet you all, to see you all on this fine Sunday evening, morning, wherever you are. Great to see you all. Today, we talk about Indian history and also about geopolitics. So before we start, let me take a look at who all is there. Hi, Vineet. Hi, Pavan, Sunitha, Vikramaditya, Harshit, Piyush, Tathagata, Parvez, Atulit, Ankit, Abhi, Chetan, Raghav, Himanshu, Yusinor, Arun, Mahesh. Good, good to see you all. Great to see you all. And I would, before I begin, I would like to thank all of you who have taken new memberships. Welcome to the new members. Thank you very much for supporting the channel. Hi Arnav, hi Rohan, Vishnu, Abhishek, Neil, Arnav. Good to see you all. Good to see you all. So let's get into it with today's questions. Let me start with question number one. And question number one is by Hussein. So this is a question from Twitter. Hussein says, it would be interesting to hear your opinion on the battle of Saragari. I see the film Kesri was celebrated, which glorified the valor of British sepoys who happened to be six. And the tribesmen attacking the post were Pashtuns, were Pashtun tribes, who, which were possibly living there for centuries, and their fight against the British forces was a revolt for freedom. I believe it was a tragedy that Indians had to join forces with the British for with the British and to kill their fellow Indians. That's a very interesting question, Hussein. So yeah, we have this film Kesri, which uh, I think came up a couple of years ago, and it celebrated the valor of the Sikh soldiers, the 21 or 22 Sikh soldiers who defended this fortress and died in one of the most famous last stands in history. And you are right, they were fighting for the British, for the British Empire. And they were fighting against the Pashtun tribes people of northwestern India, present-day Pakistan and uh, western present-day Afghanistan and western Pakistan, northwestern Pakistan. So it was basically, like you say, a battle between the forces of the British Empire and the forces of those people of the region who were fighting for their freedom. So to understand this battle and what really happened, we have to look at the bigger context. We can't just discuss the battle and the tactics and on what happened there. We have to look at the bigger context to understand what really happened and why those things happened. If you look at a very narrow slice of history, a narrow time period, then we will get a very narrow perspective of what actually happened. If we widen our perspective and look at a bigger time period, then we actually understand the forces at work and why these things happened. So it all begins. So where should we begin? Basically, I think we should begin a thousand years before today, approximately 1000 years ago, when the uh, Islamization of Afghanistan took place. So we had these invasions happening from the West. First, it was uh, the invasions of Mohammed bin Qasim, who was part of the, who was an Arab, and the later invasions were all Turkic invasions. These were the invasions that actually uh, succeeded eventually in uh, conquering India. You first had the various Turkic invaders. You had the Delhi slave dynasty, the Mamluks, and then you had the Mughals, etc. The so-called Mughals, who were actually Turks. So the Islamization of Afghanistan began around a thousand years ago when the Ghori dynasty, which was a Buddhist dynasty, and probably before that there were Hindus, there's no real difference. So they were the ones who got converted to Islam and they continued ruling Afghanistan, but that was that became 
the that that began the Islamic era of Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan got converted reasonably rapidly to Islam. There were Hindus and Sikhs living there until until very recently. There's very few left now, but Afghanistan has always, for thousands of years, been the northern part of India, the northernmost part of India, right? The people of Gandhar, it was called Gandhar in uh, Vedic and, and uh, Mahabharat era times. And the people of Afghanistan, the true people of Afghanistan, the Pashtuns are basically an extension of the Indian population. They are the same genetically, the infamous genetics argument, right? They are basically the same ethnically, even culturally, their underlying deep down culture is the same as that of uh, the rest of India. Of course, today, they do not see themselves as Indians. They are a separate nation. And, and that's a fact. That's a fact that cannot be deni denied. So it's a separate country now. So it all begins with the uh, Islamization of Afghanistan. Then you fly fast, fast forward a few hundred years. You had uh, uh, Sher Shah Suri who fought the Mughals, who fought the Turkic invaders, which we now call the Mughals. And uh, he basically conquered northern India, northern parts of India. He conquered Delhi. He, used, he, he evicted the Mughals from Delhi and uh, ruled over Delhi for a period of five years. Uh, I think it was, was it, I think it was Humayun who was evicted by Sher Shah Suri. So Sher Shah Suri saw himself as an Indian. As a, as a Muslim, of course, was a, but as an Indian, and he saw the Turks as foreigners, right? And after Sher Shah Suri's death, uh, soon we had another Indian emperor, Hemachandra Vikramaditya, who had mostly a Pashtun army. His his army was mostly Afghans. More than ninety percent, or almost hundred percent, of his troops were Afghans. So Hemachandra Vikramaditya became the last Hindu emperor of Delhi even though his entire army was mostly Muslims, but he was crowned the Hindu emperor in a Hindu ceremony. And when he eventually lost to the forces of Akbar, who was then 13 years old, right? I think it happened in the year 1550 something, 1555, 56, when he lost to Akbar, uh, his head was cut off and it was taken to Kabul to terrorize the locals to show them what was done to their king, right? So until that time, Afghans and Indians were more, they considered each, each other the same people, despite the difference in religion, and they all considered the Turks to be foreigners. So Indians and Afghans fought together at the time, right? So that like so so that basically uh, corroborates what Hussein is saying, that the Pashtun tribesmen were Indians. Then you had the Durrani invasion. So, so uh, this guy... Uh, Ahmad Shah Durrani, Ahmad Shah Abdali, whatever, he uh, invaded India from Afghanistan several times. There were like seven, eight invasions which took place in the 18th century. He took over parts of India. He occupied Kashmir for about a century or so, right? He also assisted the Persian uh, Emperor Nadir Shah in his invasion of India, which was a bloodbath, right? And then you had the Sikh Empire that began in the at the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, and that basically pushed the Pashtuns back, pushed the Pashtuns back all the way to uh, what is now called the Durand line, right? So then you had about 30, 40 years of the Sikh empire under Maharaja Ranjit Singh, which pushed the Pashtuns back by about 1830 to the present day border of Pakistan and Afghanistan, which is called the Duran line. And then you had the beginning of the great game when the British Empire and the Roman and the, sorry, not Roman, Russian Empire 
fought i mean they vied for supremacy in the central east uh, in the central asian region uh because they both uh, because the british wanted to defend india which was their golden goose and the russians wanted to take over india so that was the great game then you had the first anglo afghan war which was a di- disastrous defeat for the british which was in 1838 i think then you had the anglo sikh wars in 1845 1848 the second anglo sikh war was a victory for the british the sikhs lost and then what happened was you began to see these conflicts between the british and the afghans so you had the second anglo afghan war in 1878 and in 1893 i think the durand line was demarcated which basically cut off a great portion of the pashtun heartland from afghanistan and that problem still continues today because many of these of these pashtun regions are today in pakistan the afghans don't recognize the durand line as the border right so this is the background to what happened in 187 1897 when this battle of salagri happened so the british wanted to invade afghanistan and subdue it the afghans the tribes people the pashtuns wanted to fight for their independence so in 1897 these british uh, forts were there in this region the salagri region it was called the tira campaign so these forts were placed in order to subdue the tribes people and uh, what happened was that the one of these fortresses was called salagari it was between fort gulistan and fort something else it was manned by 21 or 22 6 and the afghans were basically fighting for their freedom they wanted to push the british back and the sikhs basically were fighting for the british not for india they were fighting for the british unfortunately that's that's the sad story of india indians fighting indians so what hussein is saying it is it is right it is a tragedy that indians fought against indians today the pashtuns are considered to be afghans most of them all of them none of them consider themselves to be indians today but at the time they were all indians we know that khan abdul ghaffar khan fought for united india he was a pashtun so i think uh, i agree with hussein it was a tragedy that uh, indians fought indians that is the history of the past almost 1000 years indians fighting indians in the name of whatever various foreign religions foreign occupying powers being made to fight against each other so that is something that persists even today in present day india in modern india indians are still fighting indians in the name of democracy and and freedom of expression and, and god knows what else it's still going on nothing has really changed so it's an interesting uh, question to begin this episode with so good question hussain thank you for asking this Okay question number 2 this is by Aditya where is the peacock throne of Shah Jahan now so what Aditya is referring to is uh, what happened during the invasion of India by Nadir Shah Nadir Shah was a Persian Iranian uh, king he invaded India in 1739 and uh, it was a very successful invasion because the Mughal empire was in decline at the time the marathas were on the the marathas i'm not sure there was still very much a force yet if i am right but uh, the mughals were in decline and nadir shah invaded india with the aim of capturing slaves and booty and and wealth and all that it was a very successful invasion he was able to capture delhi with the help of this ahmed shah abdali or or durani and there was a terrible bloodbath in delhi in one day more than 100000 more than 1 lakh men women children were massacred for no reason so 
and one of the things uh, that uh, so he took away an enormous amount of booty from india a great deal of plunder he was he he got so he became so wealthy that he was able to abolish taxes in persia for like 2 3 years after that so that's the amount of wealth he took back he took, took back lots of slaves as well indians right and one of the things he took back to persia was the mayurasan which was the throne of shah jahan it was in the shape of peacocks and all that it had peacock peacock uh, motifs carved on it so this is one of the things that was taken back it was made of gold it had lots of precious jewels and diamonds and rubies and what not on it and the question is where is this throne today so uh this guy nadir shah he was not very popular he was assassinated by his own generals just a few years later like 8 years after his invasion of india i think it was in 1747 or something like that and in the aftermath of the chaos that ensued ensued after the assassination this peacock throne was most likely dismantled and it was uh, taken apart for for the various uh, jewels and all the gold it had so it was basically destroyed it was uh, melted away and all the jewels and everything was were extracted and well they must have found their play their way into various different hands today must many of them may be in europe perhaps in various in the hands of various collect collectors perhaps so we don't really know what happened after it was destroyed but i'm sure that the the wealth was redistributed in some way so that is what happened to the peacock throne it was the throne of shah jahan it was extracted from india from taxes raised up, uh, from indians and the gold and jewels extracted out of india that, that's what shah jahan did and then it was stolen by nadir shah and eventually that wealth became part of the wealth of persia okay kensen vlog asks why is it that many thai cultures are pretty much the same as same with india so this is something you if we observe all across eastern asia southeastern asia pretty much the bedrock the cultural bedrock of southeast asia is is basically indian culture it's because of uh, nearly 3000 years of indian influence in southeast asia so it all begins with uh, the region of kalinga which is now called odisha so we had these uh, uh, merchants from kalinga who would trade with southeast asia with thailand with burma with all with parts of indonesia cambodia laos etc right uh, the champa kingdom was uh, um it wasn't the champa it was one of the other kingdoms which was founded uh by one by a merchant from kalinga funan it was called funan so yeah you had a great deal of influence for almost 3000 years going out of india cultural contacts um, trade contacts and all that so it began with as far as we know it began about nearly 3000 years ago with the uh, voyages of the people of kalinga to southeast asia thailand was very much part of this sphere of influence and this basically increased over the centuries later obviously as we know very well you had the chola a uh, suzerainty over most of southeast asia which persisted about until about 1000 years before today so the chola basically chola empire incorporated most of southeast asia all the way to the philippines and the cholas they propagated sanskrit and hinduism throughout this region the kalingan people also did the same and that's how we have so much uh, such a deep impact of indian culture all across southeast asia 
so this entire region was once a hindu region they all everyone practiced hinduism not because hinduism was imposed by force but because it was slowly slowly absorbed and taken up by the people of this region right and people uh, some people say that the cholas spread tamil in southeast asia because you have tamil speaking people in malaysia and singapore that is not correct at all the tamil speaking speaking people of malaysia and singapore are a result of the migrations which happened during the british raj era the british sent lots of indian indentured laborers essentially slaves to these regions to do hard labor and most of these people happen to be tamils and the people of malaysia who speak tamil and the people of singapore who speak tamil are the descendants of these these uh, migrations did not happen during the chola era during the chola era what was spread was was sanskrit and hinduism right so thailand was very much a recipient of this cultural exchange thailand was pretty much a hindu kingdom it still is even though thailand even today is as of today is a buddhist country officially it's a de facto buddhist country but the uh, royal rituals the royal coronation weddings etc are officiated by brahmins and these are done by uh, with hindu rituals right so the royalty still practices hinduism in a way because see it doesn't call this a hindu practice or anything because there is no real difference i have said this time and again there is no actual difference between hinduism and buddhism there is no delineating boundary or any such thing so that is the reason why thailand has so much indian culture i mean if you go to thailand it all is indigenous thai culture it is all hinduism or dharmic culture with thai characteristics very much thai so it's very much indigenous and yet they are more proud of their indian heritage than us if you go to various parts of thailand you will see enormous statues of ganesha enormous statues of shiva the statues of vishnu everywhere you see temples of vishnu throughout bangkok uh, one of the names of bangkok is indrapuri right and 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 in suvarnabhumi airport in bangkok you have this great tableau of the samudra manthan so these are all manifestations of thailand's ancient hindu heritage indian heritage and that's the reason why it is there because of these almost 3000 or even longer years of contact between india and the rest of southeast asia india has always been a net net exporter of culture india has always exported its culture to other places india has absorbed culture only in the past 1000 years and that too under duress it was not willing it was not done willingly it was imposed upon india but indian culture has spread outwards always willingly india has never forcibly imposed its culture anywhere whether it's in japan or china or korea or anywhere in southeast asia so that is the reason my friend why thai culture is pretty much the same as indian culture if we look underneath the surface movie buff asks uh explanation on the recent pakistan and afghan and taliban situation also how taliban can be harmful to india also the history of these taliban and pakistan collaboration so the current situation is that basically uh that the taliban has essentially taken over afghanistan large parts of afghanistan i would say more than 80% of afghanistan seems to be if we uh, see the reports it seems to be under uh taliban control to st- some extent or the, or the other the afghan uh, government is trying to fight back but the taliban have captured great am- very large amounts of territory i think kandahar is seems to be under assault from the taliban kabul is still holding out i hope it 
holds out. I really fear for the safety of the people in Kabul. So that is a situation. And as we know, the Taliban is a creation of Pakistan. So what is the background, right? So the background is that in the 1980s, you, Afghanistan was a very nice modern country. It was almost like a first world country. It had very good standards of living, excellent education, excellent infrastructure. It was almost like a European country. Men, women had equal rights, more or less, and so on. And then what happened was you had uh, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan with, uh, with the objective of expanding their sphere of influence. They invaded Afghanistan and then there was a civil war. So the Americans did not like this at all because the, the Americans want to maintain their hegemony worldwide. And, and that was the time of the, of the Cold War. So these two superpowers were vying with each other for influence globally. And if the Soviets were to take over Afghanistan, it would greatly expand their footprint. So the Americans, uh, uh, basically they partnered with Pakistan and they trained these Mujahideen, these Af Afghan rebels. They gave them uh, cash, they gave them uh, training, they gave them arms and ammunition. And this basically became a guerrilla war between the Mujahideen who were supported by the US and Pakistan. So between the Mujahideen and the uh, Soviets. And the Soviets did not do a very good job. Eventually in the late 1980s, they had to leave Afghanistan. It was a humiliating defeat for them. So the Mujahideen succeeded but Afghanistan was ravaged. It was completely ravaged. And the Mujahideen were basically, they, they imposed this extremely regressive uh, worldview upon Afghanistan. And so the 1990s was a period of great strife. The, the president of Afghanistan, the Soviet puppet, uh, Najibullah, met a very bad end at the hands, hands of, the, of, the, of the Taliban, I think. So the Mujahideen morphed into Taliban. After the Soviet invasion ended and the Afghan war ended, these Mujahideen were redirected into Kashmir in 1989. And the Indian government did basically nothing. And that's why Kashmir basically exploded into volatility and insurgency in the late 19, 1980s, 89, 90, 91. That was the worst period of Kashmir's insurgency. It was all done by Pakistan. They redirected the Afghan Mujahideen and all the various terrorists into Kashmir. In India, the Indian government of the time allowed this to happen. So that is the background. And then the, they created this force called the Taliban, the Pakistanis. They basically rebranded these terrorists as the Taliban. This all began with Ziaul Haq, who, who basically uh, changed the education system, made it very regressive. And this gave rise to various terrorist outfits with the aim of liberating Kashmir from India. Right? And this also gave birth to the Taliban. And the Pakistan dream is to use Afghanistan as basically their strategic backyard. It gives them strategic depth. They imagine in the future a great war with India to destroy, to reclaim Kashmir and destroy India and basically conquer India. And they want to fight to the last Afghan. So they want to use the people of Afghanistan as cannon fodder in this war. And all of this is part of that. So Taliban basically is a Pakistan proxy. Its aim is to occupy Afghanistan, govern Afghanistan as a Pakistani, uh, as a vassal state of Pakistan. Right. So that's what it is. So Pakistan has basically succeeded right now. It is in the process of succeeding, unfortunately. So what happened was that after the 9-11 bombings, 9-11 terrorist incident in the United States, the Americans 
uh, bombarded Afghanistan. They went to war in Afghanistan. They evicted the, the Al-Qaeda and the Mujahideen and the Taliban, etc. to some extent from Afghanistan. They were in Afghanistan for about 20 years, right? And now they have left the country. The problem is the Americans did not ever destroy the Taliban. I mean, they claim that the uh, the various terrorist factions and forces in Afghanistan were responsible for the 9-11 terrorist attack and their mastermind was Osama bin Laden. Well, why did they not destroy the Taliban completely? Why did they allow the Taliban to, to have safe sanctuary in Pakistan? Why did they not sanitize the whole of Afghanistan and make sure that, that by the time they leave, Afghanistan is safe and secure. They did not do that. I think their, their end game was always to leave Afghanistan in chaos. And their end game also seems to be to, to drag China into the Afghanistan mess. Because Afghanistan has traditionally been the so-called graveyard of empires. The Russians failed, the, the British failed before that. The Americans also seem to have failed. So the reasoning seems to be that, that China will also fail. But the, the calculation is, in my opinion, wrong because the Chinese have a border through Tibet with Afghanistan. So the Chinese, well, they have an advantage that these other so-called empires never had. So I think the Americans want the Chinese to get dragged into this and, and suffer a defeat there. But it may not entirely work out the way they want. So basically, the Americans have used Afghanistan and now they have thrown the Afghans to the wolves, just like Mohandas Gandhi did when he when he left uh, the Pashtuns with Pakistan. He did, he did not uh, ensure that uh, Pakistan and India remain united. He agreed to partition and all the Pashtuns who had supported a, a united India were thrown to the wolves. And that's what Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan said to Gandhi, that you have thrown us to the wolves. So once again, the Afghans, the Pashtuns are suffering because of the actions of an imperial power. This, In this case, the United, the United States. And that is the situation right now. Uh, will Taliban be harmful to India? Well, they have taken over all the Indian infrastructure, whatever India has built. There's a dam that they seem to have taken over over there. So whatever India has invested in Afghanistan over the past 10 or so years, a few billion dollars worth of investment is all going to, it looks like it's going to fall into the hands of the Taliban. And it could also possibly have some blowback in in uh, the Kashmir region if Pakistan tries another misadventure. They are quite cautious now after the after what India has done to them in the past couple of years, the Balakot thing, the surgical strikes. So Pakistan is very cautious nowadays. So India seems to be okay, but the Indian interests in Afghanistan have been sacrificed and India is currently in no position to exert any kind of influence in Afghanistan. So that's the situation as of today. Siddhant asks, why exactly has America pulled itself out of Afghanistan, knowing that China will now have, free, have a free hand to expand there? What's America's end game for the Middle East? Let's talk about Afghanistan. So like I said, the Americans kind of had this exit plan that they would leave eventually uh, Afghanistan at the mercy of the Taliban. And they knew that China is basically taking over Pakistan. Pakistan has become a colony of China nowadays. So the keys to the, to the Taliban are in Rawalpindi, which is Pakistan's military headquarters. But the keys to Rawalpindi are in Beijing because Rawalpindi is basically the attack dog of, of China. Right? 
So that's the game that's being played. The Taliban are a proxy of Pakistan. Pakistan is a proxy of China. So the Taliban are essentially a proxy of China. And they have welcomed China, Chinese involvement in Afghanistan with open arms. They are saying that we will be happy if the Chinese were to rebuild infrastructure in Afghanistan, etc. What the Chinese want is, one, they want to expand their, their sphere of influence. And they want to further encircle India. Secondly, they want to exploit all the various resources that Afghanistan is so rich in. There is the Mes Ainak uh, monastery, an ancient Buddhist monastery, which sits on top of an enormous copper deposit. So the, so the Chinese want to destroy the monastery and take out all the copper and much more. So the, so the Chinese have various interests in Afghanistan. That's why that's why they are slowly getting involved very cautiously in Afghanistan. They re- the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi recently met with a Taliban delegation in Beijing. So you can see how things are moving. So the American plan is to ensure that China gets entangled in the Afghanistan imbroglio. And they are most likely hoping that China will also suffer a humiliation or a disastrous defeat, long-term defeat, the way the British did, the way the Russians did, and now the way the Americans have also ignominiously left Afghanistan. But their calculations could be very wrong because the Chinese actually have a land border through Tibet with Afghanistan and and via Pakistan also because Pakistan is more or less a Chinese colony. And therefore, it may not be so hard, so, so easy to dislodge the Chinese from Afghanistan, especially when the Taliban are welcoming the Chinese with open arms. So the short-term outlook of Afghanistan looks bleak to me, unfortunately, I... I fear for the safety of those in Kabul. The Chinese want to engulf this region. And that seems to be the reason why America has pulled out. America is a declining power now. It is very visible. America's power is waning. The Chinese power is rising. And that's what we are witnessing. And India is watching. Chiranjit Majumdar asks, Tell us something about the HAL Marut and why it is stopped. So the Hindustan Aeronautics Limited Marut was a fighter plane, was an Indian fighter jet. It was the first fighter plane that was developed in India. It was most likely in uh, the first Asian fighter plane which was developed in Asia. So the designer of this aircraft was Kurt Tank, who was a German aeronautics engineer. He was a, he was a very renowned and and uh, and successful engineer and designer. So he designed this plane and uh, it was called the Marut. It was in the 1960s, I think, that in the in the beginning of the 1960s that this development took place. And I think the first uh, production aircraft was delivered to the Indian Air Force in the late 1960s. Now, this was a very good design for a first design, for a first fight, for the first fighter aircraft the country has produced. It was a brilliant design. It was a very good plane. It nevertheless had a couple of deficiencies. Its power plant, which means its engine was not powerful enough. And this was a political problem. India was either unable or unwilling to acquire a powerful enough jet engine from the West. And secondly, it was not able or not willing to invest the resources in developing a powerful indigenous jet engine and therefore the this plane was hampered by the fact that it used a very underpowered engine and that's why it was never able to exceed Mach 1 
which is the supersonic limit and yet it was a very good plane it 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 uh, saw action military action in 1971 it did quite well uh, it was involved in the battle of longewala in which pakistan suffered a disastrous defeat from the air there's another movie about that called border or something so yeah it was a good plane it was a very good plane but it was decommissioned in the early 1980s and no further development was done i mean if you have a version 1 of a of a plane which is quite good you should iterate upon it and improve it that's how you build better and better planes that's what every country has done you first build one plane which is good enough reasonably good and then you slowly over the years and decades improve upon it slowly 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 you create version 2 version 3 version 4 then you create different offshoots with with two engines or maybe some other configuration and that's how you build your own defense industry and you build on your own array of fighter aircraft in the case of india you created the 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 marut you refused to uh, put a powerful enough engine in it and then you killed the program and that was it so this was all politics indian politicians you know how they are there they there were lots of inducements from western countries to indian politicians and various indian regimes to acquire military hardware including fighter planes from the west but if you have your own fighter planes which you have developed indigenously then how can you buy fighter planes from the west and then how can you get kickbacks and what the various other benefits so this is the reason why this wonderful fighter plane project was killed off and that's why india still is struggling to have a uh, an indigenous arms industry of its own now we have the lca tejas which is a, which is an excellent aircraft it needs to be improved upon everything needs to be improved improved upon but the lca tejas is an excellent fighter plane of uh, in its class so if india had persisted with the hl marut and improved upon it india may today have had a number of different fighter aircraft which were derived from it unfortunately india's politicians did not pursue india's national interest they pursued money and this wonderful fighter plane program was killed off so that is the sad story and the usual story of of indian arms and ammunition development so that's what happened with the hl marut okay this is the next question india is working on its jet engine called kaveri for the past 30 years what's the status of the jet engine development in india without jet engine india cannot be a superpower in the aviation field you are right without a jet engine of its own india cannot be a superpower or any kind of power in the aviation field it will always have to acquire jet engines from other countries so this kaveri jet engine has been in development like you said for the past 30 or so years as of today it is still not successful right it's not still uh, achieved its objectives i have heard that recently the french uh, the french firm snecma was believed to have offered a transfer of technology to make this uh, kaveri jet engine work as part of the offsets in the rafal deal i don't know what's happened with it there is no uh, there's no new news that's come out of this project so it seems to be in the doldrums sometimes no news is good news sometimes if you are making progress you should you should keep quiet about it sometimes even if you have succeeded you should not announce it i agree 
I understand that, but I don't know. I mean, there's been no news about this project. It seems to be as far as we can tell at the same level. We have we seem to have made no breakthroughs thus far. And the, the truth is that developing jet engines is very difficult. You know, jet engines, the thing is, India has very good jet, I mean, uh, rocket engines, right? We have a number of very successful, very reliable rocket engines. We have a number of missiles which use solid fuel rockets. We have the, the PSLV and the GSLV, various iterations of these rockets which use very powerful Vikas engines and whatnot. These are liquid fueled engines. In the case of jet turbines, it's a very different technology. The thing is that you need to be extremely adept at materials science in order to build a good, reliable jet engine. Because the temperatures inside the jet engine, which basically impinge upon the turbine, they are in the thousands of degrees Celsius. So you need to be able to develop very specific materials that can withstand such incredibly high temperatures for a very long time, for thousands of hours, right? So that is the challenge in developing a jet engine. You can always design a jet engine that can work. You can do it on in the computer uh, programs and all, and you can test it out. But the material has to be able to withstand those temperatures. And that is the challenge. You have to develop these jet engine blades out of a single crystal of metal. So that's usually what happens in the West. That's, that's how they have succeeded in uh, building reliable jet engines. And that's where India has been struggling thus far. I don't know where the progress uh, has reached. As, as far as we know, there's been no new announcement about any, any progress in this matter. So I agree that India needs to, to develop a number of jet engines for various aircraft. It cannot keep relying on Rolls-Royce engines or various other uh, general electric engines for its, its aircraft. India needs to develop its own jet engines. The Russians have done it. The Chinese seem to have almost succeeded now in developing their own jet engines. India needs to take this very seriously and have its own reliable, proven jet engines in the next five to 10 years maximum. So this is something that needs to happen. It needs to be taken up on an urgent basis. Kampreet Khadal says, dude, I disagree with you and I have two reasons. First, India is not the richest empire in the world. Mansa Musa kingdom was. So uh, this is uh, with reference to the video I made about Chinggis Khan. Why Chinggis Khan refused to invade India? In which I said that India was the richest country in the history of, of the, in the known history of humanity. So this gentleman is disagreeing. He's saying that Mansa Musa's kingdom was the richest empire in the world, not India. And this is a, a comment I have got lots of times. This is a question many people have asked me. Yesterday, Ranveer Alabadia also sent me a, a, one of the a link about this. So hi, Ranveer, if you're watching, I'm sure you all know who he is, right? So, so what's the truth? So uh, here, here's the fact. Uh, Mansa Musa was a king of Mali. So where is Mali? Let's go to the map. Let me show you on the map because we need to. <laughs> the map is our best friend. Okay, here's the map. Let's take a look at Western Africa. So as you can see here, if you can see my mouse pointer, this is the modern day nation of Mali. So the kingdom of Mali was in this region. It included Mauritania, Ghana, uh, Guinea, and Cote d'Ivoire, etc. This, this entire region of Western Africa, 
this southwestern region of ancient of ancient Africa was called the Kingdom of Mali, and their king was Mansa Musa. Now this uh, region is very influential even in the U.S. today. Uh, what we call blues music comes from Western Africa. So you have many uh, musicians like Tumani Diabate and uh, Vufakature and many other musicians. So it's been a very influential region uh, even in modern times. This was a very rich region in the past. Uh, in the first half of the of the second millennium CE. And this kingdom of Mali had very extensive gold resources. And that's why the kingdom of Mali was very rich. So Mansa Musa was uh, the king of Mali in the early 14th century. Okay, he was the king in the early 14th century. I think between 1310 and 1325, 30 thereabouts. Okay. And he is reputed to be the richest individual in the history of the world, in the known history of the world. So his wealth is estimated to be, in today's dollars, to be worth about $400 billion in today's money. $400 billion. That was his worth in today's money. So if we compare, Jeff Bezos has a, is worth about $177 or $180 billion today. Elon Musk is about $150 billion worth. And Bill Gates is worth about $125 billion as of today, this, this month. So if you compare Mansa Musa, he was worth about $400 billion at that time. Now, does that make the kingdom of Mali the richest empire in the world? Does it? Does it really? So think about it this way. You have heard of the great uh, Sri Padmanabha Swami temple in Kerala. One temple, right? Now, recently it was uh, discovered that it contains an enormous treasure which has been donated to this temple over thousands of years. And the minimum value of the treasure in this one temple exceeds $1 trillion. Right? So there is more than two and a half times the entire wealth of Mansa Musa in one Indian temple. Hmm? And it's just one temple. So that is the comparison you need to see. One individual being super rich doesn't make his country the richest country in the world. Let me show you a different example. Let's, uh, let me show you a different... Uh, let me share my screen and show you an image. Here we are. Okay. So this is from Angus Madison's uh, book. Angus Madison is a very famous, I think, American economist. He did a comparative st study of the GDPs of the world in, in ancient history, starting from, as you can see here, 1, 1 AD all the way to 2003 AD. And what he found is that India was consistently the richest country in the world for the best part of the first 1500 years since 1 AD, right? And in my opinion, he has made certain oversimplifications. India may have, and according to his calculations, India accounted for at least a third of the world's GDP for most of this time period. In my opinion, if he had calculated correctly and not made certain assumptions, India would have been closer to half of the world's GDP. But that's not the point here. If we see the data here, this is India. If you can see my mouse pointer and you can see the GDP, right? 1 AD, 1000 AD, 1500 AD, etc. Compare Africa with it. 
in 1 AD okay mansa was musa was in the 13th century so it's closer to 1500 so at that time india's gdp was this here 60500 and look at africa's gdp the whole of africa 19383 less than one third of india's gdp and that's the whole of africa not just mali and therefore despite mansa musa being the richest hum- uh, human in human history that wealth that he had was just a drop of water in the ocean india was historically the richest civilization in the history of humanity for most of history and even what the europeans called prehistory because i i would say that during the harappan era of india's history india may have accounted for two thirds of the entire world's gdp that's how rich india was that's how large the civilization was that's how prosperous it was and it was completely fully industrialized at that time 3000 4000 years before bce so india has always been the richest civilization in the history of the world despite mansa musa being the richest individual that we know of his wealth was just a small drop in the ocean in the big in the context of the big picture right so i hope that explains and uh, and puts this question to rest right mansa musa's kingdom was rich yeah sure but it was nothing not nothing compared to what india was in its entirety now the, now another question i would like to ask you is where did all this wealth go why is mali so poor today right if mansa musa musa was so rich and he had so much gold and so much wealth then why is mali so desperately poor today and the answer is what is the official language of mali today what do they speak in their official communications they speak francais they speak french it was french colonization that extracted all the wealth out of mali and that's why europe is so rich because africa was very rich and europe colonized africa they divided up africa the french the germans the dutch the belgians the british the italians and who else everyone and they extracted everything of value out of africa and also out of india and that's how europe became so rich and that's how there is no gold left in mali today all these enormous reserves of gold were extracted out of mali by the french and the french were not, not the only ones there were so many more abuses done to africa by the various europeans that's how africa is dirt poor today that's how africa is in such abject poverty and misery despite it having had brilliant beautiful culture and beautiful civilizations throughout throughout its history so that is what colonization does and that's how africa ended up where it is today right so i hope this answers your question Aditya asks we keep hearing countries uniting against terrorism and we also know the places from where they operate yes we do then why does terrorism still exist why haven't we finished it off yet well who's we who's we we in india want to finish off terrorism but our government doesn't have the wherewithal to do it it doesn't build its influence its sphere of influence beyond our borders we still are dealing with problems within our borders and we are completely unable to influence anything that happens beyond our borders afghanistan is a stone's throw away from us we have invested billions of dollars in afghanistan and we have now allowed all of that investment to fall into the hands of the taliban that's one thing so we if you're talking about india india is not doing anything to expand its sphere of influence right india is not building hard power india keeps harping on about 
soft power. So terrorism, terrorism. Why does terrorism still exist? Well, terrorism still exists because it is useful. There are many powers in the world that want to, well, do things that don't really fall within the uh, norms of uh, acceptable behavior internationally, and therefore they use proxies. The Taliban uses, uh, sorry, the Pakistanis have are well known to have used proxies, terrorist proxies in India, in Kashmir, in other parts of India, in Mumbai attacks and other attacks throughout, throughout the country, and also in Afghanistan in the form of the Taliban. The Americans used the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan. The Mujahideen gave rise to Osama bin Laden, who then attacked the US. Right? Then you have the Middle East. You have these various terrorist proxies over there also. You have the Abu Nidal gang in the 1980s that no one remembers today. And then uh, various other terrorist organizations. You have terrorist organizations in Somalia, etc. Everywhere. So these are all proxies of larger powers that want to ensure that their hegemony continues worldwide. And they use terrorists and terrorist uh, outfits as disposable uh, means of expanding or maintaining their power and their hegemony in various regions. One of the regions that's always in conflict is the Middle East. The other one is... uh, is the Indian subcontinent, the western part, Pakistan, Afghanistan, all that. So these terrorist outfits and this phenomenon of terrorism is useful for big powers because it enables them to achieve certain foreign policy objectives and certain interests of theirs, certain agendas of theirs, without actually being seen to be involved in these matters. And that's why terrorism is so useful. That's why you have te- outfits like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, Taliban, various various uh, terrorist outfits that Pakistan sends into Kashmir, etc. So these are all extremely useful. And that's why many large powers turn a blind eye to their operation and, and actually help them out. So that's what's happening. Okay, this is by Vicky. Why didn't China lose the mandate of heaven? Why didn't the, didn't the Chinese Communist Party lose the mandate of heaven when defeated by the Vietnamese? So the, so the Chinese uh, invaded Vietnam in the late 1970s, I think, 1979 was it? Uh, they invaded Vietnam and they suffered a disastrous defeat at the hand of, hands of the Vietnamese army. And it was a, a disaster, yes. It was a military disaster. It was a, it was a debacle. So I had said in one of my previous episodes that there is a concept called the mandate of heaven. So historically, Chinese emperors were seen, seen to have the mandate of heaven when they were able to rule the country with a strong, firm hand. And when they lost uh, a military engagement or a military campaign, then that's when they were said to have lost the mandate of heaven and that's when the people rebelled against them and that's when uh, dynasties would fall and eventually new dynasties would emerge. So basically you would lose the mandate of heaven if you were to have a terrible military defeat. And I extended this concept to apply to the Chinese Communist Party. I said that the Chinese Communist Party is nothing but a new imperial dynasty and the only way they will go out of power is if they 
experience a catastrophic military defeat somewhere, in which case they will be seen to have lost legitimacy and the mandate of heaven in the eyes of the Chinese people. And then that's when you would have a rebellion, whether it's internal to the, to the CCP or external to it within China. So now this is a good question. It's a brilliant question. Why didn't the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, lose this mandate of heaven when defeated by the Vietnamese? It's because they were able... See, in 1978-79, China was a closed society. It was very much like what North Korea is today. There was no influence of the external world into China. There was no internet. There was no BBC. There was no CNN. There was nothing. The only news, media, whatever the Chinese people would be would, would consume was all official Chinese Communist Party news and propaganda. That's all. So what happened in Vietnam did not ever reach the eyes and ears of the Chinese population because all news was strictly controlled. So I would expect that this military defeat was twisted <laughs> into a military victory for the Chinese uh, population. And they must have been told that we taught the Vietnam is a great lesson and we killed so many of their soldiers and we then came back after teaching them the lesson. So that's the kind of spin that must have been given to this entire debacle by the Chinese Communist Party. And that's how they were not seen to have lost the mandate of heaven. If something like that were to happen today, in today's age of the internet, in the age of the, what do you call it? VPNs. So the, so the Chinese people are able to circumvent the Great Firewall using VPNs, virtual private networks. So it's impossible today for such a debacle to remain secret. And if such a debacle were to happen today, then the Chinese people would come to know about it. Then dissatisfaction would rise exponentially and there would be a rebellion maybe within the Chinese Communist Party itself, a coup of sorts, or there could be rebellions in Chinese territory as well. So that's the thing. They were able to uh, sanitize the, 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 the version of what happened and they were able to pro pro project it as a Chinese victory to the Chinese people. And that's why there was no dissatisfaction or rebellion anywhere. So that's how it happened. Siddhant asks, America wants to protect its hegemony. China wants infinite expansion. India wants to become a superpower. What's Russia's endgame? Where does it ultimately, what does it ultimately aspire other than counterbalancing now China and now America and in the future China? Well, I disagree that India wants to become a superpower. India's people want India to become a superpower. India's government is doing nothing in the direction because to become a superpower, you need to exponentially increase your hard power and your power projection capabilities. What's India doing about it? Nothing. Right. You can't become a superpower through slogans. Look at the United States in the past. Why was it a superpower? Because it was able to project power globally at a moment's notice. Why was Russia a superpower? The USSR. Because it was also able to project, project power globally at a moment's notice. And it was very much, it had a very strong presence globally. Diplomatic presence, economic presence, and military presence globally. Uh, warships, submarines, aircraft carriers, a blue water navy. So does India have any of that? Is India even trying to develop that? No. Therefore, India's government doesn't seem to aspire towards India becoming a superpower. India's people do want it. But India's people, are their, their aspirations are falling on deaf ears. Now, about Russia. What is Russia's endgame? 
So Russia's endgame is Mr. Vladimir Putin's endgame because he is the de facto emperor or Tsar of Russia. So uh, Vladimir Putin is basically uh, trying to expand Russia's sphere of influence, whether it is in the Donbas region, whether it is in Ukraine, whether it's in the Crimea, whether it's in Central Asia. He sees all of this, this uh, these territories as Russia's native sphere of influence. Russia's natural sphere of influence, Russia, Russia's historical sphere of influence. So basically, Mr. Putin is like a Tsar. He has imperial ambitions. He is basically he is the emperor of Russia. He calls he is called the president, but that's what he actually is. Now, the Americans have encircled Russia through Western Europe, etc. From Afghanistan as well, they try to do that, right? And uh, that is what Russia has tried to counterbalance, and they have created a de facto alliance with China, a quasi-alliance with China to counterbalance the Americans. Now, Russia is very much aware that the Chinese are also a long-term threat to it. The Chinese are an expansionist power. The Chinese will be content with nothing except global domination. So that will eventually conflict with Russia's uh, self-interests. So the long-term future between Russia and China is that of conflict. That is given. It's guarantee. Even today, Russia has pointed ballistic nuclear missiles at China in various places, right? So the problem with Russia uh, is that it doesn't seem to have a proper succession plan. The Chinese Communist Party has a very clear plan of succession. They, They will have political continuity. The next president will be somebody from the Chinese Communist Party, somebody who is Uh, appointed by the Politburo, by the uh, National Executive or whoever it is. And the overall long-term objectives of of the Chinese Communist Party will remain unchanged, no matter who becomes the next president. In the case of Russia, there is no such uh, body like the Chinese Communist Party in Russia. It's just a one-man game. It's Vladimir Putin. So the question is, one day Mr. Putin will have to step down either when he is very old or or whatever, whatever the circumstances are, one day a new person will come in his place. So will that person continue with the same policies and plans and will that person have the same objectives, long-term national objectives as Mr. Putin? So is there a proper succession plan? The succession plan is what ensures continuity of a civilization, a kingdom, an empire, a country, whatever. Why did the Mongol Empire break up? Because the succession was problematic. Why does any empire break up? Because of problems in the succession. In the Chinese, in the case of China, they have a good succession plan. It's a very stable system. In the case of Russia, we still don't know. So that is the main question. That's the big question. Will Russia have political stability and continuity in the next 10, 20 years when Mr. Putin will definitely be much older? Will he be able to continue in power or will he delegate his power and authority to somebody else? Or will it be taken from him somehow? This is the big question in Russia. So that is a big unknown right now. And that is also what the Chinese are waiting for because they are the Chinese have a hundred year plan. They don't plan for the next five years the way we do in India. Every five years we have new policies and new plans. There's no continuity. So that is the question. As of today, we don't know. The end game... I think Russia doesn't have any uh, expansionist hegemonic ambitions. It wants to be a major power. It wants to remain a major power and it wants that to continue. It doesn't seek 
global hegemony the way the Americans seek or the Chinese seek. But will it be allowed to continue playing that role is the big question. Mr. Putin is very strong. He's a very strong man, right? We know his policies are very good very and, uh, and very clear. He's got clarity of thought. He's got clarity of action and, uh, and plans and strategy and all that. But after him, what happens? That is the main question. And that is the big, big unknown as of today. Eagle asks, why did Napoleon fail in Egypt? Napoleon failed in Egypt because he was overambitious and he tried to bite off too much, much more than he could chew. So Egypt was very far away from, from France, right? We know, should we, shall we look at the map? Okay, let's look at the map. Give me a minute, I'll show you. Just a minute. Okay, here's the map. So let us go over here. So Napoleon was the emperor of France. Oh, this is France here. And Egypt is all the way here. So as you can see, it is several thousand kilometers away from, from France. So Napoleon tried to invade and conquer France. His objective was to create a base for France over here in order to cut off the British uh, the British uh, route to India. And eventually he wanted to become, he wanted to take over India as well. So he was very ambitious. But the problem is that the British had excellent logistical lines, lines of communication, lines of uh, transportation and lots of arrangements to transport uh, goods, man, materials throughout this region. They had lots of military bases. They had lots of... Um, vassal states and all that. France did not have anything like that. And therefore they were overstretched. And because he was so far from his home base and he did not have uh, a proper system for getting uh, getting uh, supplies, getting reinforcements of troops and other, other things, that's why eventually he failed in his invasion of Egypt. And he he lost a great part of his army and he had to basically come back to France quietly and secretly. So that's what happened. He 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 was over ambitious and he tried to bite off much more than he could chew. He what he should have done was to slowly, steadily and patiently build his network in this region. Network of supply lines, network of transportation, network of of allies and vassal states and then he could have done it. But he was too ambitious, he was very young. And that's what eventually led to his defeat, his ultimate defeat in the Battle of Waterloo, because he was very impatient. So that's the reason why Napoleon lost in Egypt. Siddhant asks, how did Nehru become so prominent in the Congress that he became the PM despite him being so incompetent, meek, suffering from inferiority complex all his life, etc.? Well, to understand why somebody like Sri Jawaharlal Nehru succeeded in the Congress Party, we have to understand what the Congress Party really was. The Congress Party was created in the in the 19th century by Alan Hume. The founder of the Congress Party was Alan Hume, an Englishman. He was British, and the aim, the only aim, the only objective of the Congress Party was to create a proper, uh, civilized. British 
mediated British overseen freedom struggle for India. So a fake freedom struggle for, for India. And that would take the shape that the British desired it to take. Basically, it would be a non-violent freedom struggle. There would be no violence. So then you could categorize all violent freedom struggles, all violent manifestations of India's freedom aspirations as terrorism. So you see even that today in India's history textbooks. If you go to any uh, university textbook of history, they will portray people like Bhagat Singh, etc. as terrorists or extremists. So, So the objective of the Congress party was to create a fake freedom struggle, right? A freedom struggle that was led by people who were British educated, who were Anglophones, who were Anglophiles, and whose first allegiance was to the crown of England, of Great Britain. So that was the objective, the plan, the agenda of the Congress party, which was created by an Englishman. And if you see the history of the Congress party, all of its major leaders were all educated in England. They all spoke English as their first language. They all loved England. They all owed their allegiance to the crown. And they espoused a very gentle, respectful, obedient freedom struggle. No violence. Petitioning the government. Writing letters. Doing non-violence. Hunger strikes. And things like that. And therefore, the leaders... and, And when somebody like Subhash Chandra Bose ascended to the leadership of the Congress party... It was an accident and he was very quickly overthrown in a coup by Mohandas Gandhi. Gandhi engineered a political coup within the Congress party, which led to the expulsion of Subhash Chandra Bose out of the party, right? So the objective of the the Congress party was to shepherd India's freedom struggle in a way that suited the British so that the British could continue on in India as long as they wanted to. And then they could have a proper exit strategy from India, which was the partition and destruction of India. So that was the only agenda and objective of the Indian National Congress. And the exit plan was to partition India and install a puppet prime minister or a prime minister of their choice in India. So essentially, it was a transfer of power from foreign crooks to Indian crooks. And they wanted somebody who was very much indebted to them. So basically, uh, when the partition happened, India became a dominion status uh, country. Then there was this internal election in the Congress party in which Sardar Patel, won almost all the votes. It was, I think, unanimous. And yet Gandhi, Mr. Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi, arm-twisted the Congress party into into basically accepting Nehru undemocratically as the Prime Minister of India. So it was not a democratic process. It was an undemocratic process. Mr. Gandhi was basically furthering the agenda of the British in installing this this great person, Shri Nehruji, as as the Prime Minister of India. So Nehru did not did not fight an election until the 1950s. I think the first Indian election, parliamentary election, was in 1951, I think. So 47 was merely a transfer of power from the British to a bunch of people the British chose. That's what it was. And that's why Mr. Nehru, despite his wonderful uh, characteristics, was able to become the Prime Minister of India. He was selected by the British. Sathvik 
asks, why should we spend so much money in space exploration, etc., when we have so much poverty and other, other problems to deal with, which requires a lot of money? Why can't we spend that money in some crisis like the current situation to help the needy? It's a good question. This is a question that lots of people ask. It's a question that lots of foreign uh, journalists write about. You have poverty in India. Why do you have a space program? Why can't you use that money for something really useful? Uh, let me tell you something. Today, most people in India admire China for the accomplishments they have been able to achieve. The Chinese space program began in the 1960s and 70s with transfer of technology from Russia. So when the Chinese space program started, the long march rockets and missiles and all that, China's more than almost almost 90% of China's population was below the poverty line. And yet they invested in the space program and see where it is today and see what China has been able to achieve today. If they had not invested in their space program in the 1960s and 70s, China would not be a near superpower today. Look at India. India invested in ISRO in the 1960s, 70s, etc. Today, India has an okay-ish space program. India is able to launch its own satellites. India is completely independent in the the field of space. India doesn't, doesn't need anyone's help. Had India not invested in the space program, we would have had to buy satellite bandwidth from the West at incredible prices. All our communications would have been monitored by the West and other powers. So we would not have had the level of technological and communications independence that we have today. So despite India being a poor country, India invested in in the space program and it was a good step. It was the right thing to do. We have to solve these problems in parallel, not in sequence. Otherwise, we will take a a couple of centuries to reach where we want to reach. Today, India is rich enough to solve all its problems. India has enough money to solve all the problems. The problems are created artificially. These problems are persisting because of various internal problems that India has. Mostly, it's politics. Politicians want India to be... uh, India to be fighting each the people of India to fight each other all the time because these fights and these divisions cause uh, these fights and divisions basically gain them votes and that's why that is the the problem with India's system India's so-called democratic system it basically pits various parts of India against each other so the main so the main so the issue is that India needs to keep investing in science and technology while solving its other problems in parallel. India has the resources and the funding and the money and everything it needs to eliminate poverty today, to make India a better place today. It just needs the right leadership. I think we have reasonably good leadership today. We need better leadership. We always need better leadership, no matter who it is. So that's why India needs to keep developing and investing in its space program. It is very important. We do that. Harshit says, as China's latest Mars project was completely successful, what challenges does it bring to ISRO? As our space program is delayed because of the Chinese virus. Yes, our program is completely stopped right now because of the Chinese virus. Whereas the American space program is continuing, SpaceX is continuing to launch launch rockets. The Chinese are launching rockets every month. And so much is happening. But India's space program is currently on hold because of the Chinese virus, which is very strange. 
progress should never stop no matter what happens so i am disappointed with the fact that india's space program is currently currently paused now you are right the chinese mars project has been successful they have been able to land a rover on mars if we if we uh, believe what they are saying they have released some video of that etc so, so chinese have not reached mars by accident they have been planning it for decades they have been uh, improving the te- technology step by step by step they first targeted the moon they reached the moon they sent spacecraft in orbit around the moon then they sent a lander on the moon then they sent a rover on the moon then they sent a lander and rover on the far side of the moon then they sent a sample return mission which has succeeded so every new mission is a new improvement on the technology and because of this iterative improvement that they have been doing in technology that's why the, now they are good enough to send a lander and rover to mars so that's how you progress you do it step by step it has to be a long term plan does isro have a plan isro scientists are second to none in the world they are as good as any scientist in china or any scientist in nasa or spacex we have the best scientists in the world my question is does the political leadership has have a vision for india in the space race do they want india to be a space superpower or not or is it all about just uh, launching a few satellites for a foreign country and getting some money out of it and is that all are we a taxi service is that all isro is or are we actually ambitious enough to think to to want to have a base on the moon and a base on mars someday and do we have a time frame on that because a plan is just a dream unless there is a time frame on that and a proper step by step approach to it so that's what india needs india has the potential to be on mars in the next 20 years but it's all about the leadership it's all about the political leadership whether it has the ambition and the vision to make india a space superpower so i hope there is something like that in the works but as of now we see nothing no sign of that which is disappointing okay question by harshit So Harshit says China has announced its 400 billion dollar investment program in Iran. How challenging is it going to be for India to consolidate its relationship with Iran as the Chabahar project is delayed? <laughs> the Chabahar project isn't delayed, it's over. Okay? The Chinese are investing 400 billion dollars reportedly in Iran over the next 20 30 years. So what is a few million dollars from India compared to that? Why would the Iranians have any interest anymore in uh, the Indian project in Chabahar? The Chinese can take off every, take care of everything. The Chabahar project is over. No matter what the Indian government says, no matter what signals they should they they and noises they make, this project is over. The only objective of the Chabahar project was to connect India to Afghanistan via Iran. now that the afghanistan now that now that afghanistan has fallen to a great extent to the taliban and to pakistan what's the point of having this trade route to afghanistan whom are you going to trade with with the taliban so as of today the chinese have made great inroads into afghanistan they have allied with the iranians the iranians have thrown everything with into the chinese camp because the americans have been uh squeezing them with these terrible sanctions for decades so now that the iranians are going to uh, get a great deal of relief from the chinese 
because of this investment. But of course, the Chinese will extract their pound of flesh. So from the perspective of India, we can forget about Chabahar until and unless we can reopen our land access with Afghanistan, nothing's going to progress. So that is the situation as of today. Even Harriman says the Balochis are much more useful to India as a point of leverage with Iran and Pakistan. A credible point of pain that India can bring if they don't cooperate with India's strategic interests. As soon as they achieve statehood, what utility does Balochistan offer India? Very little. And once you follow through with that, now your relationship with Iran is in the gutter. Listen, India has never had a great relationship with Iran. I have shown this, I have spoken about this in a previous episode as well, that Iran has always supported Pakistan as compared to India. And Iran has never been a reliable, trustworthy ally of India or even a fair weather friend. The only relationship India and Iran have is that of trade in oil and this proposed project in Chabahar. Now that the Chinese investment has come into Iran, all of that is over. And the US has already squeezed India into... into uh, So India has stopped buying oil, more or less, from Iran. So there is no real relationship left with Iran. And, India, and Iran has historically been antagonistic towards India. Iran has its own imperial ambitions. And Balochistan is a point of contention. Because half, almost half of Balochistan is currently occupied by Iran. So yes, you're right that if uh, India follows through with uh, with helping Balochistan gain independence, its relationship with Iran will be in the gutter, but it's, it's already in the gutter. India has nothing to gain vis-a-vis Iran. Iran is no friend of India, right? And what do we gain by, uh, by bringing, by allowing the Balochi people to gain independence? Well, we break Pakistan up. Pakistan is an artificial country. It's a temporary country. It is India's unfinished business. It is Indian territory that has been given away without consulting the people of India. So it is all unfinished business. By ensuring that Balochistan gains independence, you are disintegrating Pakistan. And that is that should be part of India's long-term objective in the next 20 years. Only with only when Pakistan will cease to exist in the form that it exists, it exists today, only then will India have better relationships with the people to its west. Right? Only then will India have peace in the western border. And then India will be able to concentrate elsewhere. So India needs to ensure that Pakistan is balkanized peacefully. No conflict, no violence, no killings, nothing. Peacefully in the next 10 to 20 years. This needs to happen because Pakistan is an affront to humanity. What they are doing in Afghanistan is is monstrous. It's barbaric. They are not a force of good in the world. They are a terrorist state. They are an army that has a country. It's not a country that has an army. It is a terrorist state. It needs to be broken up. So it is in India's interest to break up Pakistan and to give Balochistan its freedom. Pinkline Cabs asks, how should India tackle the damming of important rivers by China in Tibet? Okay, so first of all, the major river that China is damming in Tibet is the Brahmaputra, the great river Brahmaputra. Now, what Indians don't know is that more than 80% of the water of the Brahmaputra flows into the Brahmaputra from Arunachal Pradesh and Assam. Very little of it comes from Tibet. 
So even if the Chinese were to dam up the river in Tibet, it won't really affect the flow of the Brahmaputra very much because more than 80% of this river of this water comes in through Arunachal Pradesh and Tibet from various tributaries, from rainfall and all that. So that is number one. Secondly, it is still kind of an act of war if China were to were to stop India from accessing the waters of these of these rivers which have been flowing into India for thousands of years. It would be tantamount to a declaration of war in, in some sorts, in, in a way. So the only long-term solution to this problem is for India to engineer freedom for Tibet in the next 10, 20, 30 years. If India is able to engineer freedom for Tibet, if India is able to make Tibet free from Chinese occupation, then for the first time in 60, 70 years, India will have peace on the northern border. So that has to be India's long-term geopolitical objective. As of today, India is not strong enough to achieve this. So India needs to start investing properly in its hard power and other forms of power. And only then will will India be able to achieve this objective. So the only solution is freedom for Tibet. Dev Sharma asks, as we see China's foreign policy is spineless, yet very effective as they like they adapted to Afghanistan's current status and met with the Taliban. Do you feel that India should also move on this spineless policy path? If not permanent, then for some time. I'm not sure what you mean by spineless. I think China's policy has a very strong spine. China is very clear about its long-term objectives, about its long-term agenda. And it pursues them, these objectives, relentlessly, with great vigor. So I would not characterize China's foreign policy as spineless. I would characterize it as being very realistic, very pragmatic. It's called real politic. It has nothing to do with emotions or ethics or principles or values. The only objective is the long-term national interest of China. And that's what they're doing. I think India should take a few leaves out of China's book. India India should stop talking about right and wrong, good and bad. Just look at India's long-term national interest and pursue that. So the Chinese are doing whatever it takes for them to achieve their geopolitical objectives in Asia. They are expanding their footprint into Afghanistan, into Pakistan, into Iran as well. They're expanding their footprint, their geopolitical footprint. So this is not a spineless move. It's a very realistic, hard power move. And that's something India should learn from and should emulate if it has any geopolitical ambitions. Divakar asks, why Hindu gods and kings married more than one woman? So let's talk about the kings. Yes, most Indian kings in throughout Indian history married more than one woman. They had several wives. Lord Ram did not do that. He had only one wife, as we know. But many Indian kings had multiple wives. This is because there is absolutely nothing in the Dharmic scriptures, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, Jainism, etc. Sikhism also against having multiple spouses. There is nothing in any in any portion of India's culture that says a man cannot have multiple wives. And there is nothing in the Dharmic scriptures that says a woman cannot help have more than one husband. So both polygamy and polyandry are acceptable in Indian culture. 
and we have see we, we can see examples of both in india's history and that's why indian kings and even regular people would sometimes have more than one wife right so this entire notion that we have today that uh, polygamy is evil this is a western notion in indian culture there is no concept of of monogamy there is no concept of divorce as well so we have been completely alienated from indian culture i am not trying to advocate polygamy or polyandry or anything i am just telling you as a student of history what the facts are there is nothing in india's culture that go that that says polygamy or polyandry are 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 bad or unethical or evil or anything like that it's your choice if you want to be monogamous have only one wife good for you but if if you if some king wants to wanted to have multiple wives he he very much was within his rights to do that and if a woman wanted to have more than one husband even that was acceptable in the past so today's laws constitution morality are all based in western morality and uh, we are completely deracinated we are cut off from our culture and that's why we we now feel that these things are evil there's nothing evil or right or wrong about this it's a matter of personal choice if somebody has multiple wives and he treats them well i don't see anything wrong with that hinduism never saw anything wrong with that dharma never saw anything wrong with that and the same goes for one woman having multiple husbands so it's all about seeing history and seeing the past through the proper lens right priya rai asks as i have read during alexander's invasion we were under the nanda dynasty while chandragupta was planning to dethrone dhananand so yeah that's a point of confusion that's a point that is not very clear right now we know that uh, we know that when seleucus nicator okay so alexander invaded india uh, somewhere in the 3rd or 4th century bce and about 17 years later seleucus nicator also tried to invade india so when seleucus nicator who was alexander's general tried to invade india at the time we know for sure that chandragupta maurya was the emperor of india he was a very powerful emperor he had an enormous empire now the question is that when alexander invaded india who was the emperor of india was it dhananda of the nanda dynasty or was it chandragupta so most historians say that it was dhananda of the nanda dynasty now the question is that if chandragupta defeated dhananda uh, usurped the throne from him and became the emperor of india it would take a lot of time for him to consolidate his power throughout the country especially in a era when there was no telecommunications right so it would take 10 20 30 years for that to happen but when seleucus nicator came to india as an invader just 17 years after alexander's death he found that there was this enormous empire in india under one emperor chandragupta maurya so was that enough time for a new emperor to take over the country defeat all opposition and unify the country again was there enough time for that and that's why this question always keeps arising was it chandragupta maurya or was it dhananda who was the emperor of india during alexander's invasion of india that is the big question so the historical consensus among historians is that it was dhananda who was the emperor during alexander alexander's time and yet there are doubts there are still legitimate questions which have not been resolved yet 
So as of today, the consensus is it was Dhananda, but we cannot be 100% sure as of today. Arun says, whoa, whoa. I watched you and Ranveer Alabadia discussing that no invasion happened. And it's us who went outward and we took our genes outside. But now you're saying there is Indo-Greek Chandragupta Maurya thing. This means there's some Aryan thing that is inadvertently brought in. That means we have some Aryan blood in us, not in South, but a bit in the North. So what's so so what Arun is saying is that because there was this Greek invasion, there was this Greek uh, in, Indo-Greek dynasties in, in in the Northwest of India, and because Chandragupta married a Greek lady, that's why there is some Aryan. Uh, component in our genes. So the assumption that Arun, my friend, is making here is that the Greeks are Aryans. Arun is assuming that the Greeks are Aryans and because there is some Greek component in our genetics, in some of us in India, little bit, like half a percent or something, that's why there is Aryan invasion and there is Aryan genes in us. So the assumption assumption that, that Arun is making is that Greeks are Aryans. Now who says the Greeks were Aryans? What is the definition of this term Aryans? That's my question. Who are the Aryans? So the thing is this. If any ethnicity in the world is to be given the name Aryan, it is the people of the Indian subcontinent and the people of Iran. Only those people can be considered to be Aryan because it is from this region that the term Arya emerged. It is an ancient Sanskrit term. It was an ancient Persian term as well. Persian is a descendant of Sanskrit. The old Persian language during the time of the Hakshamanish dynasty, the Achaemenid dynasty, was a descendant of Vedic Sanskrit. And the term Arya was used by them as an ethnic term, by the Persians. And India in the old days was called Aryavarta, which means the abode of the Aryan people, of the Arya people, means the noble people. Which means that all Indians were Arya, according to this definition. North India, South India, East, West, all of them. Right? So if any people, if any people are to be called Aryans, it is the Indians and the Iranians. By Indians, I mean the entire subcontinent, from Afghanistan to Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, all of that. And let me show let me share an interesting thing with you. Just give me a minute. There is this, this letter by the writer J.R.R. Tolkien. So, in 1938, uh, the Germans wanted to publish J.R.R. Tolkien's great novel, The Lord of the Rings, in German, in the German language. But they wanted to know whether this guy, Tolkien, was a pure Aryan according to their definition, according to the German definition. So, the German definition, the Nazi definition of Aryan was European, white-skinned, blonde-haired, right? So, they wrote to J.R.R. Tolkien asking him whether he had Aryan ancestry or whether he had some Jewish ancestry or not. So this is the response of J.R.R. Tolkien to the Germans. He wrote that, I am not of Aryan extraction, that is Indo-Iranian. As far as I am aware, none of my ancestors spoke Hindustani, Persian, Gypsy, or any related dialects. So J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a linguist too, was very clear about who are the Aryan people. The Aryan people are the people of India and Iran and nobody else. So to to assume that Greek blood is Aryan blood is is inconsistent with the facts, right? 
So yes, many of us in India would have some fractional Greek ancestry, especially those of us who live in Western India. It's very much possible. But even the Greeks, the Indo-Greeks, they spoke Sanskrit. They were Hindus or Buddhists. And they considered themselves to be Indians. It's just the modern Indian historians who considered themselves to be, who consider these people to be Greeks. They were culturally Indian. The Indo-Greeks like Menander, Melinda and various other kings were culturally Indian. And culture is what matters, not DNA. All right. Okay, I hope this answers the question. Yosef uh, Husman asks, will Indians tolerate if there is a one-party system that looks after the national interest and the well-being of the entire nations as Indians are too sensitive about democracy, which means colonized democracy? You know what? Indians tolerate everything. Look at the history of the past 1000 years. They have tolerated anything. They have survived. And today we are tolerating this fake secularism, which is the Hindu-phobic state. Our constitution is Hindu-phobic. Our laws are Hindu-phobic. Our government policies are Hindu-phobic. Our temples are under siege. Our temples' wealth is stolen by the government and used for non-religious purposes and whatnot. So Indians tolerate everything. Indians tolerate everything. Indians are like sheep today, unfortunately. Right? So if there is a one-party system that looks after the national interest, Indians will tolerate that too. Indians don't worship democracy. Indians worship nothing. They just want to be left alone and live their life in peace. That's the average Indian person. That's the average Indian citizen, man, woman, child. They just want to live in peace and pursue their own life and do whatever they can. It doesn't matter what is the system on top. (laughs) So I am sure that Indians would very much tolerate a one-party system that looks after the national interest and the well-being of the entire nation. The media will rebel against that. But the media is an agent of outside forces. The media is an agent of the so-called the so-called international community. Do you know what the international community is? Let me show you the international community. This, this is the international community. So when we use the term international community doesn't like this, it means these countries only. The rest of the world doesn't apply. <laughs> so when the media talks about the interests and the and the perceptions of the international community, the, in, the international community will never accept this. It means that these few countries will not accept it. The New York Times has this worldview. The uh, New York Post, The Guardian, the NDTV, The Quint, The Squint, The Print, whatever, they all espouse this worldview. They are agents of this so-called international community. The real international community is the entire world which are marginalized. So it doesn't matter. The media will complain, ignore them. But the Indian public, the Indian people will definitely tolerate a one-party system, for sure. They have tolerated everything else. They have tolerated much worse in the past thousand years. A one-party system that looks after the national interest will be a great change for the better. (laughs) So yeah, Indians will tolerate it, for sure. Not Aditya asks, I would like to ask if you have any insights on how to kickstart the Indic Renaissance. How will it transform our society? So to see what, how do you bring about renaissance? A renaissance is a flowering of culture. It is a revival and rejuvenation of culture. And since you're talking about Indic renaissance, you mean India's indigenous culture, not various 
foreign cultures that are now present within india you're talking about india's indigenous culture as it should be so what are the conditions that that give rise to a renaissance the conditions that give rise to a renaissance are prosperity economic prosperity and geopolitical security these are the conditions that give rise to renaissance so the people need to have very high living standards which means that they don't need to slave in day in and day out 12 hours a day just to put food on the table the per capita gdp should be very high that should that will ensure that people have access to leisure activities and it is these leisure activities that lead to a flowering of the culture and they, all of this can never happen if the country's borders are not secure so for a renaissance to happen india needs to become a very far, powerful country india needs to become a regional power or a superpower so that is what will kick start an indian renaissance and also the living standards need to improve which means india's economy needs to see double digit growth for the next 20 30 years that is what will kick start an indian renaissance it all starts with hard power military power and economic power and all the hindu phobic policies and the hindu phobic constitution and laws need to be thrown out and something indigenous needs to be put in its place so that is what would kick start an indic renaissance all right that brings me to the end of all these questions let me see what you are talking about live do you have any questions i'll take a few live questions Saurav asks there were there any great universities in southern and indian ter- eastern territories of india like nalanda and takshashila or were they all concentrated only in the north india's universities were everywhere wherever you had a great temple you had a great uh center of learning uh, nalanda itself is in the east right it's in the east of india it's in present day bihar if i'm not mistaken nalanda was in the east of india telhara was in the east of india you had universities all across india everywhere north south east west you had universities outside the present day geographical location of india you had universities throughout greater india throughout central asia throughout the so called xinjiang region of china which was a great center of learning by the way you had universities in tibet you had universities in present day indonesia and cambodia angkor wat is a great temple complex it was also an educational complex so you had this flowering of education throughout greater india and all of that has been wiped out today which is terrible so that's the answer to your question they were everywhere not just in the north all right let me see some more questions Yashash asks can we leverage Taiwan militarily and diplomatically the same way China uses POK against India China uses POK against India because it's it's able to project military power all the way in this region you actually have chinese soldiers in pakistan occupied kashmir and china has a direct land connection with pakistan occupied kashmir via uh, the parts of kashmir that have been ceded to it and via tibet so the chinese have infrastructure and supply routes and supply chains and military infrastructure all the way into pok that's why they are able to leverage it against us now do we have any power projection capabilities in the south china sea we have none and therefore we cannot leverage taiwan militarily in that manner in the way 
the Chinese use POK. Diplomatically, India doesn't even leverage, it doesn't even recognize Taiwan as a country. And therefore, we are not able to leverage it diplomatically as well. India has one of the smallest diplomatic core in the world. India has a total of 1,700 diplomats, which is less than the number of diplomats Singapore has. So these are the deficiencies and drawbacks in the Indian system. These are all deliberate. These are all intentional. India doesn't want to rise as a big power. And it is something the government of India can change tomorrow if it wishes. So that's where we are. Nitin says, why do the people of Kashgar not look like us? Perhaps you say it is part of India, Uttar Kashi. Listen. Central Asia, Xinjiang was part of India, was. Today it is not part of India. The demographics have changed. You had the Turkic invasions, which destroyed Indian culture throughout this region. The uh, native people of Xinjiang today are the Uyghurs, who are, you could say, ethnically half Indian, half Turkic. Right? So that's why they don't look like us, because the Turks invaded the region, they killed all the men and took all the women. And that's how the people of Kashgar don't look like us Look like us today. Do you understand? This is what happens. This is what happened in history. So it was all part of greater India in the past. It is no longer part of India today. Even the ethnicity has changed. Parikshit asks, you may find this question very silly. No, sir, no question is silly. Ask me anything you like. I will take your questions if I can find them. Can you explain the meanings of the terms BCE, CE, AD and how the ancient times are measured using these terms? BCE means before the Christian era. CE means the Christian era. AD means Anno Domine, means the year of our Lord. These are all Christian terms. Nowadays they have been secularized by saying, by, by, by rephrasing them as before the common era and common era. But it all begins with the year in which Jesus Christ is supposed to have been born. So this is a Eurocentric worldview. And they consider everything that happened before CE, which is BCE, to be prehistory. Because according to them, there was no history before the supposed birth of Jesus Christ. So this is a very Eurocentric worldview. And we have adopted and internalized these things. Um, And today, even I have to talk about BCE and CE, because if I don't use these terms, my audience will not know what I am talking about. So India had its own calendrical system. We had the Shaka era, we had the Vikram Samvat era, which are still used to some extent. And we also had the great Saptarshi calendar, which started sometime around 6000 something BCE. So our history is very much older, but we have abandoned it in modern post-independence India. Okay, let me take one more question. Abhinav asks, what led to Nehru giving refuge to the Tibetans and the Dalai Lama? As a socialist, anglophile and Chinese appeaser, what led to this move? Well, Mr. Nehru was, (laughs) he was a confused person. He had no actual, uh, he wanted to appear to be a statesman. He was a self-styled global leader, one of the great colossal towering figures in the world. 
and uh, he was the he considered himself to be a leader of the non-aligned movement and uh, he always spoke about ethics and morality and he used to moralize on global platforms and all that and it is in light of this that he offered refuge to the tibetans and to the dalai lama even though he was instrumental in supplying rice and other food items to the invading chinese soldiers in tibet without mr nehru's assistance the chinese would not even have been able to conquer tibet so this is the dichotomy that you see in mr nehru who was a confused person the great sri nehru we have to address him with great respect but he was very confused he helped the chinese occupy tibet without his help it would not have happened and then he offered refuge to the tibetans and to the dalai lama in india and this was then taken by the chinese as a great pretext to go to war with india as well so that is the thing about mr nehru i think i should do a separate separate episode about mr nehru himself because he has contributed a great deal to our country anyhow that brings us to an end to this episode thank you very much my friends for all your questions for participating for your viewership i appreciate it very much thank you so much and i will see you in the next episode thank you take care have a good day have a good night bye